Please turn with me in your Bible to the end of Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Today we are going to be talking about one of the most important moments in early church history, at least we'll be beginning uh, to speak about that today, which is in Acts 15, something called the Jerusalem Council. Some of the things we're going to talk about at the beginning today may feel a little bit detached from our life today, but I, I do want to assure you that they relate very much to our Christian life today, and uh, the very fact that Gentiles, non-Jews, can be Christians without converting to Judaism, which to us is kind of like a no-brainer. We would say, well, obviously, you don't have to convert to Judaism to be a Christian, but that was not obvious at all in the first century. And the decision that is made at the Jerusalem Council determines whether or not you had to convert to Judaism today. And it will also affect a lot of other things about how we understand the basics of salvation. So if you look with me at Acts chapter 14, I'm going to read the last section of that chapter, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what is happening in the context. So Acts 14, starting in verse 19, this is the word of the Lord. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on to, uh, with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God." And when they had appointed elders uh, for, for, for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Pause right there. This is definitely not the point of my sermon, but I can't resist making this point. In the New Testament, there is no exception to this that I can think of. Every time a local church is talked about in relationship to its elders, remember the New Testament, the word for pastor, the word for elder. And the word for overseer are all three used for the same office in the New Testament, which is a pastor, elder, overseer. And every time we get the specifics, every single time without exception, a church has multiple elders. No exception. It has become popular in Southern Baptist circles, especially in the last century, that there's a single pastor leader of the church, and then there's a, a group of deacons. And we are all for deacons, as long as we define the word deacon biblically, we're all for deacons. But... The idea of elders or pastors, every single time in the New Testament, look at verse 23, there's a plurality of elders in a local church. And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in what? Every church. Elders, plural, in every church. So just as a little side note, we'll talk about this more in Acts chapter 20, but uh, a plurality of elders is, is a biblical theme that runs through the whole New Testament. Verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God and for the work that they had fulfilled. Okay, now look with me at the screen. I know you're probably going to become weary of this map soon, but hopefully it will be burned into your mind. So, just to remind everybody, if you haven't been here, starting from Jerusalem, there was a persecution that began, and this persecution... Uh, sent a lot of Christians up north to Syrian Antioch right here, where they started a church. This was the first church that had a massive mixture of Jewish Christians 
and non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. This is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a melting pot of all kinds of backgrounds and religious views, and they all come together in the church. And so what you'll see throughout the New Testament is you you really have these these two places, Jerusalem and Antioch. Those are sort of the two big churches in the early church. And the Jerusalem church, virtually every Christian in Jerusalem, in the church, is an ethnic Jew or a convert to ethnic Judaism. So virtually every Christian in Jerusalem, even through the book of Acts, continues to practice a lot of the ceremonial laws, even as Christians. They don't eat... They eat kosher food, most of them. Uh, they, they continue to circumcise their children, most of them. Uh, they continue to practice the, the three annual feasts. All those kinds of things are still happening. You'll see that in Acts 21. And so to them, it just sounds beyond the bounds for a Gentile to come into the church and be saved and not have to adopt all these things they've done for 1,500 years with the Old Testament ceremonial law. And so there is tension building between these two churches. The church at Antioch has got Jews and Gentiles all together, happy in the Lord. And then the Jerusalem church is mostly just Jews, and they're starting to get some of them suspicious about whether they're going liberal up there at Antioch. They're, they're going liberal. This is, the, I mean, seriously. The, the extreme right wing of the Jerusalem church would have said they're compromisers. And Paul is the one leading this compromising charge. Paul is saying, you don't have to keep a large portion of the Old Testament laws. We call them ceremonial laws. Paul's just saying, you don't have to keep them. They're fulfilled in Jesus. We don't have to do them. Paul. You're destroying Judaism. You're just tearing this thing apart if you teach that. And so the tension starts to mount. Now listen, this is very important. One of the big questions is that the leaders of the Jerusalem church would be very famous people like Peter, John, and James. Not James the apostle. He has already been martyred. James, the Lord's half-brother, who wrote the book of James. So Peter, James, and John are the three big Uh, faces of the church in Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas are the big face of the church of Antioch. Do you follow this? And the tension is, the question is, do the leaders of these two churches, what, agree about the gospel? Do they agree about the basics of how you become a Christian? Do you have to convert to Judaism to know Jesus and be saved? Or do you just believe by faith alone and become saved? How, How does this work? And so Paul and Luke are at pains to show you that the leadership is in agreement on this topic, even if there were some in the church from the Pharisee tradition who disagreed. Let me add one other thing just while I'm thinking about it. And this will come in Acts 21 in about four years when we get there. So get ready. So in Acts 21, you will see there that although many of the Jews in Jerusalem were still keeping a lot of the ceremonial laws, the big issue was they did not believe it was necessary for salvation. Uh, th- that, is, that is a massive distinction, and that's where the whole controversy uh, comes, comes about. Now, remember, Barnabas has been sent from the Jerusalem church up north to Antioch. If you look at the map, Barnabas is up here. He goes and gets Paul. So Paul and Barnabas are there. They go on their first missionary journey. They go uh, where this map is to all those different cities, and then they come back, those arrows, taking them back home to Antioch. When they return home from their missionary journey, which remember, The last two chapters of Acts, they've been preaching to mostly Gentiles and some synagogues. There have been Jewish and mostly non-Jewish converts. So all these churches here in this area are the Galatian churches. That's southern Galatia. The churches that start in the other Antioch, Pisidian Antioch up there north, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. These are Galatian churches. Most of them are non-Jews, and they've converted to Christianity without embracing all those other laws. And so... Paul has been gone now from from them a few months. So so Paul's planted these churches up north. He's just left, right? He's just come home to the Antioch church. He's, you know, it's kind of like when a missionary comes back, 
They, they get their PowerPoint, they got the pictures they show you, and you get to see this wonderful, these wonderful things the Lord has done. That's, Paul kind of gets his slide projector, right? He gets it up there, the screen's a little crooked, and Paul and Barnabas are going through the slides. Look what happened at Lister, the picture of Paul being beaten and nearly killed. It would be a different kind of slideshow than we're used to. Paul said, here's where I was stoned nearly to death, and that's when I got back up and went back into the city, and <laughs> that would be an interesting slideshow from Paul. But they go through and they show, they tell all that the Lord has done on their trip, and you look here at verse 27, or verse 26, from there, they sailed to Antioch. They go back to Syrian Antioch, the home church that sent them out, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. It was two years ago they were sent out. Verse 27, and when they arrived back home and gathered the church together, the missionaries are home, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the who? The Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So here Paul is with Barnabas back home at Antioch. And months go by, they remain no little time. Don't you love how Luke always says, there, were, there was not a little controversy that, that, that took place. There was not a little schism that took place. There was not, it was not a little time. I love how, Paul word, I mean, how Luke words things. It was not a little time, a long time that they're together. And what does Paul find out? Well, Paul's over here in Antioch, and apparently some teachers from Jerusalem make their way up to these churches. And they come behind Paul and they start preaching a gospel that has Jesus plus. And I, I want to read you Timothy George, who's a Galatians commentator. Uh, I want to read you just sort of, he uses his imagination informed by scripture, and he just sort of puts together in a paragraph what he thinks these false teachers were saying to those brand new baby Christians there in Galatia. I mean, they, these people had been believers for less than about two years. I mean, this is brand new Christianity. And here is how Timothy George imagines their message, these false teachers coming up to teach. This is what they imagined they said based on how Paul writes in Galatians. So here's what Timothy George says. Dear brothers of Galatia, these are the false teachers speaking. Dear brothers of Galatia, we greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have heard how through the ministry of brother Paul, you have been converted from the worship of dumb idols to serve the true and living God of Israel. We are glad you have made such a good beginning but we are afraid Paul has omitted to tell you some important things about the gospel. Now, now just picture, if you're brand new, you, you don't necessarily know what all the details are. So this would sound pretty unsettling when it first came to you. I would just say this. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I, I can still be at times, uh, you know, certain things can make me think and consider. But early on in my faith, I was much more easily unsettled by things. Things would kind of knock me and I would kind of feel like I was spinning. I didn't know what to believe sometimes. And that, that's a sign of, of usually very early in a faith. And so right here, they're trying to figure this out. They continue. We ourselves come from the church at Jerusalem. Doesn't that sound credible? We come from the, that's the mother church, the Jerusalem church, which is directed by the apostles Jesus called and ordained. We're from the church of the apostles Jesus chose. They sound authoritative. They say, Paul, though, is just an upstart. Why, he never even knew Jesus while he was on earth and certainly was never commissioned by Jesus as an apostle. Paul wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't with Jesus during those three years of his earthly ministry. Peter, James, and John, they, they were around and Jesus actually picked his apostles. Paul is late to the game. We can't trust Paul. True, Paul did visit Jerusalem just after he stopped persecuting us. And there he learned the ABCs of the Christian faith from the true apostles. But the message he now preaches bears no resemblance to the true gospel of their, uh, that they preach. I don't imagine he even told you, for instance, about circumcision. Why, this is the way God has made it possible for you Gentiles to become part of the new Israel. Jesus did not come 
to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Circumcision is just as important as baptism, nay, more important, for it will introduce you to a higher plane of Christian living. If you will observe this holy ordinance of the law, God will be pleased with you. We are just now forming a new association of law-observant churches, and we would love for Galatia to be represented. We are the true Christians. Jesus, our great example, pleased the Father by fulfilling the law, and so can you. I think that's a pretty good guess as to what the false teachers said. And doesn't that sound pretty compelling if you are a brand new Christian who doesn't know anything at all about other than what Paul said for a few weeks? That's all you've heard? So they are no doubt off balance. Now, I want, I want to just pause here and I want to turn to Galatians and spend a little time there because Paul writes Galatians probably between Acts 14 and 15. That's probably the very spot where he writes the letter of Galatians back to those churches. So imagine Paul back at Antioch here. He gets word from those churches at Iconium, Lystra, Derby, the other Antioch. He gets word that that message has been preached, undermining, get this, undermining Paul's apostleship, right? Jesus never met with Paul. When did that ever happen? But Jesus didn't spend time with Paul. He's not a real apostle. He just got his gospel secondhand. He just went to Jerusalem and picked it up, the ABCs from the, from the apostles, and then he distorted it. That's the message that they're hearing. And so I really, I'm, I'm not kidding. I wish I could read the entire letter of Galatians right now. I, I'm not kidding. I, it would just be great, but that would, that would probably not be the best decision for the use of time. So I'm going to read portions of Galatians just to give us a sense of the intensity Paul feels, because here's why. Listen, Paul, if you love your child and your child is about to hurt him or herself in a serious way, do not your motherly and fatherly instincts come out at that moment? The intensity, the maybe anger, maybe zeal, you will do anything to protect the one you love. Paul's anger here is not self-righteous anger. It's not, I'm better than you, anger. This is Paul seeing his new churches about to veer away from the gospel and fall away from grace and reject the true Jesus and to enter into apostasy and to absolutely fall away. And everything in Paul wants to prevent that from happening. So the intensity in Galatians is red hot. You can feel it because of Paul's love. It's not because he's being a Pharisee. He used to be. He's no longer. It's because he is full of love and there is life and death at stake because the gospel is at stake right now. And just out of the gate, listen to Paul. Galatians 1.1. Paul, despite what you've heard, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you, these false teachers from Jerusalem. They trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one, that we, uh, to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Just continue with me here. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't get it secondhand, guys. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about how the Lord was revealed to him on the Damascus Road. Verse, 13, verse 18. 
Three years after his conversion, he says, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained within 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The only, they were only hearing it said, he, Paul, who used to per persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Now, just follow with this. Then after 14 years... Now, just, just let me pause. You see what Paul's doing? Number one, my apostleship comes from actually meeting Jesus. I met him on the Damascus Road. Yes, it was after his ascension, but it was really Jesus. I, I did not have a hallucination here. I was full out persecuting the church, zealous for the traditions of the Pharisees. I, was all, I thought the Christianity was a dangerous sect, a distortion of Judaism. I was ready to kill Christians. I was helping imprison them. I was on my way to put them in jail when God revealed his son to me from heaven and called me to himself. Jesus did call me to be an apostle. I did not make this up. I didn't get this secondhand. I'm not lying to you. Jesus met me and chose me. I'm a real apostle. You see, he's defending his apostleship. But then secondly, he says, I didn't get the gospel from people. Where did I get it? Straight from heaven. I got it from a revelation of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers, these, these are the false teachers, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery to the Old Testament law, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Pause there. Paul's gospel was faith and faith alone. And did they add anything to that? They added nothing. This is what we've called in the Protestant Reformation, sola fide, faith alone. It is by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that we are made right with a holy God. It is not faith plus a bunch of works. It is not faith plus adopting Old Testament laws. It is not faith plus circumcision and the Mosaic law. It is not faith plus whatever you've done this week or this month or this year. It is not faith plus anything that we've done. It is faith and faith alone in Jesus alone and the apostles. This is Peter, James, and John in the Jerusalem church, you know, the one on the, where the controversy is, they added nothing to that message. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Gentiles, just as, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, ethnic Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor. That's the poor saints in Jerusalem, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, do you, you get what's going on? Paul's saying the leadership in Antioch and the leadership in Jerusalem shook hands on the gospel and they added nothing to faith in Jesus. That's crystal clear. They added nothing. Now, I, I said I was not going to read the whole book of Galatians. I'm not. But I'm going to finish the chapter because this is important. So look, look at a little controversy happened. At the, right around the end of Acts 14. Remember, it's the same time period as Acts 14. Remember, Paul stays there in Antioch for not a little time. During that time, he finds out the Galatians have been taught by false teachers. They're starting to move away from Paul and the gospel. 
Paul shoots the letter of Galatians to them as a circular letter to be read by all those churches saying, please don't abandon the gospel. And right before Paul writes that letter, something crazy happens. We talked about it a while back. The apostle Peter, remember he almost got killed in Jerusalem? Remember almost last we heard of Peter, he was about to be killed by Herod. He was in jail. The angel let him out. Well, if you're being hunted for your life, what do you do? You leave town. So Peter has left Jerusalem. Where does he go? He eventually goes to Antioch. He's got nowhere else to go at this moment. He's got to get, he, later he comes back to Jerusalem after Herod has died. But he goes north to Antioch to get away from the controversy of the moment. And there's this famous controversy between Paul and Peter about these very things. Galatians 2.11. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Wow. For before certain men came from James in Jerusalem, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles at the church in Antioch. But when they came from James, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. Now just pause here. This, this we should all say with fear and trembling. When a theological error has been demonstrated or taught publicly by a leader, it is to be confronted publicly. If I deliberately teach something heretical from this pulpit, it is not to be dealt with in private. I mean, if, I were to, if, if someone came to me in private and, and confronted me, if I had said a, a heresy, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, and the next Sunday I would get up and I would apologize and I would correct myself. But if I chose that I wouldn't do it, if I said, no, 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 I'm going to keep doing this, someone needs to get up publicly and rebuke me because if that doesn't happen, what happens? Everybody thinks that's true or everyone thinks the church believes that. And so Paul has no choice. Cephas' actions are a betrayal of the gospel. He confronts him publicly, middle of 14. Before them all, Paul said to Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now just pause there. Remember? Just let me just say, it's a breather moment here. I know this is all very technical and complex, so hang with me. This does move toward massive life application in a few minutes, but it's going to take a little bit more effort to get there. So hang with me. Remember the Cornelius story with Peter? Peter learned firsthand what? You don't have to adopt ceremonial laws, the food laws of Judaism of the Old Testament to know the Lord. How does Peter know this? Peter did everything he could to resist that. Remember, he's on the roof. Simon the Tanner's house on the Mediterranean Sea. He's hungry, so he has a vision of food. What else would happen when you're hungry? He's hungry, he's waiting for lunch. He sees all these animals come down on a sheet. The Lord Jesus says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And in that sheet were unclean animals, probably things like pigs on that sheet. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean, which means Peter had never broken food laws his whole life, even when he was with Jesus. He never broke food laws, never. Peter's shocked. I can't do that. That violates everything that I've stood for. And the Lord says it three times. You can kill it. eat. What the Lord has called clean, do not call unclean. And then remember, Peter gets taken by direction of the Lord to Cornelius' home, a Gentile. While speaking, he's, he's feeling weird. I'm in a Gentile's house. I'm going to become unclean. They got the Gentile cooties, okay? 
I'm going to become unclean in here. He says, I don't know what to do. He's, in the, he's feeling weird in a Gentile's home. This is weird. He's preaching the gospel. And all of a sudden, before he's even asked for a response, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius in his whole household. And what happens? They begin speaking in tongues, evidence of the Holy Spirit filling them. And Peter and his six Jewish friends are stunned by this. And they, they say, we can't hold these people back from baptism, which represents entrance into the people of God. We can't hold them back from being part of the church and baptizing them. Why? Because God, God went ahead of us and already said that they're in. Why? He gave them the Holy Spirit with obvious evidence because they spoke in tongues, a miraculous gift of the Spirit. So we can't stand against God and stand in God's way. God has said yes to them. Even though they're still Gentiles, God has changed things in the new covenant and he's brought them in. So Peter, if anybody, should know better about this rule, right? So Peter, for the last few years, six or seven years, he's been living like you don't have to obey the ceremonial laws. He's been eating unclean food with Gentiles. Ooh, you know, it's like, wow, Peter, you're getting kind of edgy there. Peter's been eating unclean food with Gentiles. In fact, this, it's, even, it's even more shocking. He's gone to the church in Antioch and he's been eating meals, no doubt, including communion with Jew and Gentile at the same table, eating from the same loaf of bread and drinking from the same cup. That is scandalous when news gets back home to Jerusalem. Now listen, the Jewish people may have also been facing persecution because of what Paul is doing. And so some people from James come up to him. Now, I will say, James will say in chapter 15, verse 24, that what these people said was not from our authority. We don't agree with what they said. But they still came claiming James is, a, is their authority. And they show up and they, they get to the church. And you ever had this happen? Someone who's really intense shows up and you start rethinking your own actions. You're like, Ooh, what are they going to think about what I'm doing? And so Peter sees these really intense people show up and he gets news about the circumcision party and persecution and all this trouble, all about him eating with unclean Gentiles. And so Peter's feeling the pressure. And what does he do? He says, okay, quietly without saying a word, baby, he withdraws from the Gentile table at the fellowship and he sits down with just the Jews and he's just eating with the Jews. They got their separate table and they got kosher food again. And Paul looks at them and says, you are saying by your actions that the ceremonial law is still intact, that it's still a necessary requirement for knowing the Lord, and you are telling Gentiles by your actions they have to become Jews and embrace all those laws, starting with circumcision, in order to be saved. You're lying about the gospel by your actions. That's what's happening. And Paul says even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was led astray by Peter. And Every indication, of course, is that Peter repented of this. But look what Paul says, starting in verse 15. This is very strong on the gospel. Three, Galatians 2.15. We ourselves, he and Peter, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, right? Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. In other words, we've given up the ceremonial law. We're now sinning against that, but we're no longer under that covenant. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, the old covenant including the ceremonial law, if I rebuild what I tore down, which by, that's what Peter's doing. When Peter goes back and adopts those old laws, he is rebuilding what was already torn down in Jesus. 
you get that? He's rebuilding the old covenant when it was already torn down. The, the curtain has been torn. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for, for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now just pause there. The Galatians were not present for the crucifixion of Jesus. So what does Paul mean by saying Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? This, they did not see this. Paul is saying the preaching of the gospel, when it is true to Christ, is so powerful by the Spirit, it can be as if you actually saw the crucifixion yourself. It happened publicly as if. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Okay. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 15. Let me read you a great definition of this word justification. A simple way to teach a child or an adult justification is, I love this, is simple, really good. Justified, and you can use the words just as if I'd. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd always obeyed. That's justification. Now, we have sinned, but because Jesus never sinned, my sin is credited to Him he takes the punishment. His righteousness clothes me. I'm counted righteous. That's justification. God looks at you, sinner though I am, God looks at you and says, you are just as if you never sinned, just as if you'd always obeyed because of Jesus. But a more eloquent definition comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. You can't really do much better than this right here. So here's the question. How are you righteous or justified before God? Heidelberg Catechism says it like this. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of the perfect expiation of Christ, imputing to me His righteousness and holiness as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me, if only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. That is glorious. So by simple faith, I put my trust in Christ, and I am just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd always obeyed. That is the doctrine. And Paul says, listen, you can't add anything to the finished work of Jesus. It is by faith and faith alone. Okay. Now, if we're all on the same page here, that all has transpired between the end of chapter 14 of Acts and the beginning of 15, all right? When he says, no little time, a lot happens in that time. That's what's happened. Now, these same issues are going to come to a head publicly in Jerusalem, okay? So everything's going to be moving back to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea, I'll just pause there, sorry, I'm pausing a lot. 
came down, you go, wait, looks like they went up from Judea, right? Looks like they went up. Well, in the Jewish mindset, you always go up to Jerusalem, no matter if you're going north, south, east, or west. You always go up and ascend Jerusalem. And no matter which way you're leaving, even if you're leaving uh, southward or northward or whatever, you're always going down as you leave Jerusalem. That's how they thought about it. So going down actually means going north here. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, this is in the church in Antioch, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question, they were appointed. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, that's on the way down, and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they, are, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, do you see how contentious this is? You have Jewish Pharisees, like Paul used to be, they have, trust, they have said that they've trusted in Jesus, but they don't think Jesus is enough. You've got to believe in Jesus and plus, you've got to add something to his finished work. You've got to bring in circumcision and Old Testament laws, ceremonial laws. If you put them together, faith plus works equals salvation. Faith plus works equals justification. That's what they're saying. So everything imaginable is at stake right here in church history. I mean. The gospel, humanly speaking, the gospel is on the verge of being fumbled and lost. From God's perspective, there's no chance. God is going to see to it the gospel is not lost. But from a human perspective, everything was on the line. The gospel was about to be lost, it looked like. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, now pause here. What had, Peter had what had Peter recently done? He'd gone up to Antioch and made a big mistake, hadn't he? He had gotten this wrong. He had acted like you had to keep those laws. He had acted like that. Has he, has he repented? Listen to what he says. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles, think Cornelius, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us, us Jews. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, do you see that? Gentiles were unclean, right? They were unclean ceremonially. How do they become clean? By keeping kosher food laws? By faith alone. A, a defiled, ceremonially defiled Gentile like me, right? As a non-Jewish person. It, when I trusted Christ when I was 16 years old, when the Lord worked in my heart and I trusted Christ, in that moment, my heart was cleansed by faith. No longer need the ceremonial law to be clean. I am clean in Christ. I am washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 10. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither we, neither our fathers nor we, have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, just to put these pieces together here, do you see what Peter is saying? He mentions they heard the gospel and believed. They were filled with the Spirit. They were cleansed in their hearts by faith. And then verse 11, we believe we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. I guess this may be an important point to make here. The main discussion here is not, can God forgive our sins? The main question here is not, what do we do with our sin per se? You see what the discussion is? The discussion is, what do we do with our so-called righteousness? That's the discussion. I think it was Isaac Watts who said, it's our so-called good deeds that send far more people to hell than our sins. Let's think about this for a moment. What keeps us from Christ is not that we did some horrible thing in our past that we feel ashamed of. If anything, if you've, if you've done some sort of horrible thing in your past that you're ashamed of, if anything, that creates a hunger for Christ, a hunger for salvation, a need for atonement. No, I, I think by far the greatest enemy in your heart or mine is our so-called good works. Nothing keeps us from Jesus like apparently a good life on our own, right? If I can basically keep my nose clean, you know, keep my public image up, not get in trouble with the law in my life, not get in trouble with any kind of big issue, not do anything publicly scandalous, if I can just be a nice, decent, middle-class American, never kind of raise a ruckus or cause any trouble, be considered nice by my neighbors, friends, and family, generally speaking, that is the most dangerous life because we are tempted to trust in it. This is no small thing. Our sins drive us to Christ. Our self-righteousness drives us to ourself. When we have sinned big time, oh, I need help. But when I think I've got my act together, help is insulting to my ego. I've done this on my own, thank you very much. I don't need some kind of handout. What is so difficult here for the Pharisees here, the believers who are Pharisees, who aren't true believers at this point, it seems, false brothers, Paul calls them, the problem is they, yes, we need Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. Okay, let me give an illustration. Long ago in another lifetime, I worked for a telemarketing company that will go unnamed. Jerry, you tried to get a job there. Did they hire you? Nope. <laughs> if I would have gotten a telemarketing call from Jerry, that would have changed my life right there. I think I would have said yes to whatever he was selling me to. So I, I worked for a telemarketing company and I won't, man, that was a, that was a time. So. Here's how, here's how it works. So you're working there, and I, and I was doing okay at first, and then I had a bad, uh, I don't know if it was a, I guess I had a bad week, a really bad week of sales, really bad. Like I didn't sell much at all for a week, and my advisor took me into his office to the side of the room. This is a huge room we're in, far bigger than this room, and I went over to his little office in the side, and he sat me down, and he said, listen, Mark, uh, you know, you, you did pretty well starting out, but here are your sales for the last week. I was about to start buying my own stuff just to get my sales up at this point. And uh, he said, listen, he said, if, if this continues for a few more weeks, we're going to have to put you in this other part of the, you know, we're going to have to move you to another spot, which basically means demote you. And then eventually, you know, you may not be here much longer, which I would have said, 
That would have been probably a favor if, that would have, if they would have fired me. But anyways, so here's something to think about with your job. We tend to think of job as a mixture of merit and grace. And it's very easy to think of God on these terms. Here's what I mean. So to get a job, you have to have a resume, right? It's a list of your past accomplishments. And there's nothing wrong with this in the job world, right? But we translate this into, a, into the spiritual realm to great, at great detriment to ourselves. So what, what is a resume? A resume is kind of like my humble brag sheet, right? Here, here are all the, um, here's how incredible I am at all these things I've done. And you list all the best parts of you and you leave out anything that would not be helpful. And there it is. You've got this nice curated list of perfect, you know, you look like this all-star. And you give it to the person that's printed on the perfect paper with the perfect font and everything. Everything's approved. You give it to this potential boss and your boss looks it over and they consider what? Your merits. How good are you? How worthy of you are this position? How good of a job will you do? And then let's say that they hire you based on your merits. Well, you have to continue and keep the job based on further merits. So if you sleep through work, or you don't come in on a certain day, or you don't call in sick, they may immediately fire you, or at least they may take you into the corner office and they might say, listen, I'll forgive you this once. I'll give you grace today. But if you do this again, what? You're out. You're gone. And so what happens is we go, okay, I'm going to put my merit back at work. I'm going I'm to earn my position here. I'm going to work harder. And so we tend to think it's largely merit, but with grace and forgiveness mixed in. And that's how you keep a job. That's how you get paid. That's how you make it through uh, in a career. That is the way we are all naturally built to think about God. People go, okay, of course I need forgiveness. Nobody's perfect. Yes, I've got my foibles. I've got my little peccadillos, my little flaws that I've got. Everybody's got those. Everybody's flawed if you look at them under a microscope. Yes, of course, I need a little bit of grace and forgiveness. But God's grace fills in the holes I leave. Largely, it's a meritorious life, a basically decent person. That's what I am. And it is our basic trust in our goodness that sins, if I can say this bluntly, more people are sent to hell by their basic sense of their own goodness than by the sense of their own sinfulness. That is what keeps people from the gospel of Jesus. And when you think about the prodigal son story, it's the son who ruined everything who embraces the father. It's the son who never did anything wrong who stays outside the party. Jesus is flipping things on our head. He says, listen, think about what you've done. Consider. Several years ago, I read this, maybe three or four years ago. It just, it just seemed perfect to read this again today. I'll, I'll be coming to a close here on this. In 2005, World Magazine, a woman named Andre Sue Peterson wrote uh, an article called 17 Minutes. This is just devastating to hear. And I hope that it does feel devastating so that we could see how much we need Jesus, no matter how good a life we think we have lived. This is how she wrote, and this will take me a moment to read. 17 Minutes. It's the thoughts, ordinary daily thoughts, that count. These are the thoughts of a woman driving home from the stop and shop on an ordinary day. She conjures three comebacks she could have hurled at Ellen if she had not been caught off guard. She spots the baby shower invitation on the dashboard and schemes a way to be out of town that weekend. Then thinks better of it because she has a favor to ask the sender at a later date. She sizes up a woman standing at the bus stop and judges her. She stews over a comment her brother made behind her back and crafts a letter telling him off and sounding righteous in the process. She reviews the morning's argument with her husband and plans the evening installment. She imagines how life would have been had she married X. She magnanimously lets a car merge into traffic and then is ticked off when she doesn't get her wave. 
She resolves to eat less chocolate starting today, okay, maybe tomorrow. She replays memory tapes going back to the 60s trying to change the endings. Somebody rides up on the road, uh, on the, road, the shoulder of the road and budges to get ahead in the traffic jam and she hates the driver. She passes the house of a contractor who defrauded her and fantasizes uh, his destruction. She passes Audrey working in her garden and waves but thinks so much for her claim to have chronic fatigue syndrome. She glares at a driver who runs a red light in front of her, forgetting that she did the same thing about a mile ago. She checks her slightly crooked nose compulsively in the rearview mirror and reassures herself it is not too bad. An inner voice tells her to turn off the radio and to pray, but she decides that that's the voice of legalism. She brainstorms talking points for her upcoming women's Bible study lecture on Ephesians and considers how she can improve it and make it better than Alice's talk last week. She is angry at God because here she is a Christian and broke while her good-for-nothing heathen of a brother is rolling in money. She thinks of how much better her life would be if she were beautiful and fantasizes, imagining herself looking like Gwyneth Paltrow. She wonders how her parents will divvy up the inheritance and how long she has to wait. She rehearses two good reasons why her sister and not she could take care of the folks when they're getting too old. She thinks about her childhood and counts the ways her parents have messed up her life. The Johnsons drive by and she recalls all the meals she made for them 10 years ago when Lydia had toxemia during pregnancy and bets that they don't even remember. Did they even send me a thank you card? An SUV cuts her off and she decides to punish them by tailgating. Her heart smites her for this, so she determines to try harder to live righteously from now on. Who knows, God may reward her in some amazing way. Her husband may give her grounds for divorce and God will lead her into the arms of Mr. Wright. She tries to pray, but doesn't get past our father. There are lots of other people the woman does not think of while driving home with groceries. People who are not important to her social status are just not interesting. She doesn't think about, <clears throat> she doesn't think about AIDS, AIDS ravaged Africa. She doesn't think about the death sentence dangling over millions in Sudan. She doesn't think about missionaries. She doesn't think about martyrs in Kim Jong-il's prisons. She doesn't think about ways she could encourage her children. She pulls into her driveway. Total driving time, 17 minutes. And if you were to ask the lady, as she rustles parcels from her car, what she had been thinking about on the way home, she would say, oh, nothing in particular, and she would not be lying. And then she closes the article by saying, imagine believing we don't need a savior. The reason I say that is devastating is because that's all of us, all the time. Thinking of our sins as these occasionally, outwardly obvious, embarrassing acts or scandalous acts is folly. What fills our mind in the mundane moments of every day tells us all we need to know about ourselves. There's nothing good in us left to ourselves. Paul says, I used to think I was alive apart from the law. And then the law came and says, do not covet. And then within me, all this covetousness has sprung up. Suddenly there was all this evil desire within me that was produced within me. He says, I, I thought I was alive until the law came and sin showed me I was dead. I need a savior. And he says, who will rescue me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law has set me free. So here, here's the point. We need to be saved, not just from our sins, but from our damnable good works. That's what we need salvation from. And until we see even our best deeds as ultimately filthy garments before God's judgment, we will never know how much we need Jesus. We will always be saying it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus. It's faith in Jesus. That's great. But it's also living a decent middle-class life. Those two things together. But no, 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 no. It is Jesus only. 
It is Jesus' righteousness entirely. It is 100% Jesus. It is 0% me. It is nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. It is 100% Jesus. It is 0% me. The second we add anything to the finished work of Jesus, we have not tainted the gospel. We have adulterated the gospel. We've entirely lost the gospel. As soon as you say it's faith plus anything you do, you have entirely lost the simple message of the gospel. We are saved and justified, declared righteous before God by simple faith in the finished work of Jesus alone. And then in response to that, our life will begin to change. It will begin to become conformed into the image of Jesus. Would you bow your head with me? Lord, if, if any of us, and I'm, I'm sure this is true of numbers of us, if anybody in this room right now is relying in any way on their own obedience to you as their hope for heaven and for eternity, God, show them, show me right now the folly of trying to stand in our own righteousness before you. We are as foolish as Adam and Eve hearing your voice in the garden and sewing fig leaves together to cover our nakedness. We are incapable of creating clothing that is righteous to cover us and our shame. God, please reveal to us the evil that taints our very best deed. Show us that we need Jesus not a little bit. We need Jesus entirely. If anyone within the sound of my voice has not fled from their filthy rags to the finished work of Jesus, God, right now, give them the grace to repent and to trust in Jesus. Lord, save someone right now who doesn't know you in a saving way. Open the eyes of the heart. Reveal the black evil that is in our souls and help us to cry out with Paul, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.